that's definitely like our go-to marketing strategy, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Just go after the listener. Hello, welcome to Hattrick. I'm Jordan Della Coltman, joined by Elliot Tanty. We are alone this week. Uh, Elliot Braden is off busy. Um, and uh, so it's just the two of us once again. Um, I'll, I'll ask you to refrain from singing as uh, we got lots of feedback on your singing last time. Um, we've got some interesting conversations to be had this week, all three of them. Uh, but before we get there, how, how are you? How was your week? Yeah, it was great. I'm uh, disappointed in the feedback from the fan base around the singing. I thought that uh, it was appropriate given the times. And, uh, you know, at Lister Base, you're just being a bunch of squares. I mean, you got to get on board here. We're a World Cup soccer nation now. So, uh, uh, get ready. There's more where that came from. Let me tell you. All right. With that, uh, let's get to it. Here's topic one. All right. So we're going to pick up on something we uh, led with last week as well. And we have seen the conclusion of two home games for Team Canada for the national men's soccer team. And what a, a fantastic week it was for Soccer Canada. The men found themselves on the winning end of back-to-back games in snowy Alberta, much snowier on Tuesday, I think, than the game you went to on the weekend. Uh, they they re-nicknamed uh, the brick field at Commonwealth Ice Teca as a little nod to the Azteca Stadium in, in Mexico City, one of the most iconic uh football stadiums in the world and it was ice teca there in edmonton chile i think it was like minus 11 uh alfonso davies with a great quote before the game uh saying that uh uh you know the canadians were born for this and he hoped that the mexicans enjoyed the weather uh they didn't uh canada got out to an early lead they got two up on them and then it wasn't until the very end there in the 90th minute that mexico made it very dramatic at the end uh they scored to make it 2-1 and then it was very dramatic we had a big save right on the goal line after a corner kick that went off of a chest of one of the Mexican players and it was so close a lot of a lot of you know uh sportsmanship and some uh a little pushing and shoving to finish it off but a fantastic result for for Canada I know you went to one of the games Elliot as a fan of the beautiful game and as a Canadian how proud and how excited are you that Canada is sitting atop the table here on their quest to try to get to the World Cup Oh, well, what an excellent lot, like five days here in Edmonton. Uh, so much excitement. You know, I talked a lot about this last episode, so I won't get too deep into it, but there's the excitement around the city. Um, and, you know, after that Friday game, I, I you know, I was obviously there and I, and I was over the moon and we talked on Sunday night, uh, you know, there was, there was certainly a sense of pride, but I did wonder how Tuesday was going to go as I looked out my, uh, my window and I was talking to you guys and the snow was starting to hit and I was starting to look at the forecast and actually got down to minus 15 with wind chill on Tuesday night. And I started to wonder, okay, is this energy going to subside? Are we going to be able to carry this through? You know, Mexico is a good team, not necessarily a guarantee, you know, uh, a game they are even going to win. Is this going to happen? And man, once again, Edmontonians showed up. Wasn't the 50,000 from the Friday, but it was pretty darn close. Close to 45,000 people jam-packed into that stadium. It was loud. People were excited. Uh, It was all over local social media, local media events. And of course, Canada winning and and just in an outstanding game was, was just outstanding for, I think, the game and for Canada soccer. There's two things I want to acknowledge. One, I remember when I told you guys about these games, you both were like, what the hell are they doing hosting soccer games in Edmonton in November? And I said, I said, mm-hmm. it's home field advantage. They want to beat up on Costa Rica. They want to beat up on Mexico. They want to make it as difficult for those teams as possible. So they're playing in the most difficult situation. And you have to say strategically, John Herdman, Soccer Canada, 
you guys got it right. There was a definite advantage. Our guys knew how to play in this weather, and you could tell that it was waning on both teams in both games, having to play in this in the colder weather. So well done. The strategy worked. You have to say it worked. They got two wins. Particularly the second one was not a guarantee. It wasn't even maybe no. likely. Um, so way, way to go on that piece too. The second thing I want to say is whoa, 2021 has to be the year for Canada soccer between the women's success at the Olympics uh, this summer. And now the way in which the Canadian men's team has ended the year at top of the table. Um, 2021 was just the year for Canadian soccer. And, and, and I think we'll be, will be uh, marked as a turning point, maybe for the men's, but in terms of, uh, how this team and this nation is elevated in terms of the soccer world. So, so just those, those two things for me, what an amazing show, the strategy worked and wow, what a year for Canada soccer. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think you hit it on the head there with that one, 2001, what a big year for them. Obviously the women winning at the Olympics was just like, you know, a decade coming, but you're right. This tournament feels different. It feels so much different than anything we've seen the men do in so long. Obviously, it's also the result of some youth, some young players who have grown up in this country, whether they you know, came to this country like Alfonso Davies did and fell in love with this country and fell in love with soccer, or they you know, grew up here as, as second or third generation Canadians watching some you know, very good soccer pedigree that this country has had, but not the success to go with it. And just you know, they're right at the cusp of something really, really special. And whether or not the rest of the games in this tournament go their way and they get to the World Cup or not, I think it's a huge accomplishment. But it's starting to feel more and more like, you know, it's they're they're putting themselves in, in, in even a better position, I think, than you could have anticipated a year ago. You know, obviously, as we said, sitting atop the table by a point, they've got 16 points there, you know, four wins and four losses undefeated in those two games in Edmonton, which is huge, especially against, uh, you know, Mexico is a, a genuinely world-class soccer country. You know, they have, they've been to the world cup many times. They've, they've competed. Uh, the United States is a serious contender every single time. Then these two teams are locks every year to get into the, every, every time the world cup comes around from CONCACAF, they are the, they are the two juggernauts and Canada has, has struggled in the past to get past these guys. They've, they've played unbelievably and it's the young players who are doing it. But again, I want to go back and, and commend as, as you did on the last time. And I, I don't think it can be overstated the role and importance of John Herdman. You know, if he hasn't already been given the order of Canada, he is bound to get it. If he hasn't already been given citizenship, sign the guy up. Like my God, what an unbelievable story for for a person who came over, you know, I think he grew up in, in Northern England and came over to Canada to, to teach the game. He grew up loving to these Canadians and he's found, like you said, sort of this mix hybrid between sort of a South American style freewheeling game. And also this like lockdown mm -hmm. defensive middle field that just works. And of course, you know, he's found talented players and, and, the, and soccer Canada deserves some credit too, for developing those players. And obviously, you know, there's a side story going on with soccer Canada and, and some controversy that needs to be dealt with as far as who knew what about this uh, coach out of the white caps. And I think that that's a secondary story. We'll, we'll probably want to cover as it continues to un unfold, but for the moment as a Canadian soccer fan, you know, I think we should all be very proud of what these guys have accomplished and, and only, you know, good things to come. You look forward to what's coming and, you know, they still have big tests. They got to play Honduras in January. And I think they also play the United States in January. So, you know, that January 30th game is really going to be the next major hurdle. If they can beat the United States, you know, they've pretty much put themselves uh, past the point of a uh, failure there. This is, this is where they have to, they have to show up for these next couple of games in January. And then, you know, anything's possible.
Any last thoughts, Elliot? Yeah, absolutely. Just just to remark, the team's undefeated too. They're the only team that's undefeated. It's four wins and four draws. They haven't even lost a game yet. So uh, January, end of January, beginning of February, going to be a really exciting time. Can't wait. So excited. And I think, you know what? So is the rest of the country. Like they, people are on board now. And this is 1.3 million people watch that game on Friday. So, yeah. Well, you know what? It, it, just as a, as a last sort of coda to this, you know, what is kind of interesting is the idea that the way this tournament unfolds in these sort of two game windows, when you don't have a national, a real solid national soccer you know, culture, we have the white caps, we have Toronto FC, you have the impact, and then you have some sort of like local pro teams, not to take anything away from them, but this isn't like in England where they're watching the premier league. And this is a secondary story. The national team is sort of on the back burner until the world cup comes around. This is the biggest soccer story Canada is going to get. And what's so cool about it is that you do have these chapters unfolding over the course of several months. Yeah. And it does feel like the momentum is growing. So if they're able to get to that World Cup, can you can you can you imagine just like the fever pitch of support that will be behind these guys as they get to go to the World Cup in a year's time? Like what an unbelievable journey that they've already taken us on and they've got even more, you know, drama to to to, to share with us. So well, and here's one the last thing I'll say. I know this we've gone on a lot much longer than we intended to with this topic, but I think there's lots of excitement between the two of us. March 30th, 2022 is the last game of World Cup qualifiers. The game's against Panama, and that's very likely a game for third place. A, a game that's 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 playing for third place in that final spot in the world in the World Cup. So mm-hmm. very exciting things to come. All right, we'll leave it there. Hey, guess what? The Ordinary Podcasting Network has a brand new show. If you're a fan of Hattrick Sports, then I promise you, you are going to enjoy the Backyard Basketball Podcast. Braden Della Coldman, who is one of the hosts of this show here, Hattrick, hosts an amazing basketball show with one of his best friends, Christian Steck. Together, the two of them will break down the NBA, news from around the basketball world, and get you caught up on everything you need to know. It's fun. It's fast. They have great conversation and banter. They love basketball, and you will love the Backyard Basketball Podcast. Subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts, and you can also follow them on Instagram at backyardbasketball underscore podcast. All right, on to topic two. Um, this is a bit less uh, fun and exciting story. It's it, it, it's uh, definitely a dramatic story, though, and it's continuing to unfold, including news out of uh, China today. But let's take you back for a second and, and, and sort of tee this up uh, from the beginning for those who aren't uh, following it. Um, tennis star Peng Shui, uh, Chinese uh, tennis star, recently uh, posted on um, Chinese social media an accusation against uh, the, uh, uh, I believe, like the deputy chairman or, or high-ranking member of the Chinese Communist Party, um, accusing him of, of sexual assault, uh, uh, very similar to many of the other Me Too stories we've seen on social media in North America, but obviously in very um, different climate and culture in China. And following this accusation, she, she basically disappeared. Um, and it, it became evident very quickly over the last week that the Women's Tennis Organization, or Association and um, the IOC, no, no one seemed to know where she was. No one seemed to be able to get information on her. There was a statement released by Chinese media that felt very, um, let's say, uh, friendly to the Chinese uh, government as far as uh, suggesting that she was simply 
taking some time at home, um, but it didn't give very much detail or anything else. And, and I think rumors and accusations began to start to bubble up, especially from people close to her and within the tennis community, uh, questioning whether or not there was something more nefarious going on. Um, and so obviously in the last couple of days that the heat on that has ramp ramped up, the Women's Tennis Association threatened to pull all uh, of their future tournaments out of China, uh, basically saying that they would they would cut off complete ties with China if it was found out that something nefarious had happened here, that they weren't able to get the information that they needed. Many other tennis stars came out on social media basically demanding evidence of proof of well-being and all of these things. Uh, and, you know, it led to a lot of bigger geopolitical conversations, uh, bringing up other examples of, of Chinese human rights violations and whatnot. Um, but today, uh, we did get some clarification to some level. Uh, the IOC has come out and claimed that they have now received proof of well-being, that there's a video that they have verified of her attending a, a Chinese youth tennis tournament that shows her in, I guess, relative good health. I don't, I mean, she's not speaking in the video. It's just her at a public event. Um, but it, it, there seems to be evidence that this is that this is enough proof for the IOC, at least, to feel like she is safe. Um, so this may change uh, sort of how this whole story unfolds. But as the course of the story evolved, obviously, it starts to get woven into, as I said, sort of political, bigger conversations. There was some conversations that came out of the a meeting. Um, I don't know what they call it anymore. They used to call it the Three Amigos, when when the three big leaders of uh, the three North American countries, Mexico, Canada, and the United States, I don't know if it's still called that or not, um, met in Washington. Yeah, it still is. Okay, uh, so Joe Biden and, and, and Justin Trudeau obviously had a private conversation and had a public uh, press conference together in the Oval Office. And out of that, there was some questions about whether or not the United States and Canada and Mexico and some other Western nations would consider a boycott of some sort of the Chinese game, similar to what we've seen in the past uh, during the Cold War and, and, and other such things, just as a statement of... Um, condemnation of some of China's record on human rights. And obviously, you know, there, there seems to be some evidence that at least there's an exploration of this, whether it's a diplomatic boycott or it's something more, we don't know. But the point being, this little story that began as, a, as one woman trying to share her truth has evolved, as I said, into sort of a geopolitical crisis for China. You know, they want the rest of the world to know this woman is safe, and yet they are completely censoring her and any news about her in their own country. And they're kind of having to ride, ride this tightrope um, down, down the middle on this. And it does feel like it's part of a bigger pattern for China, as far as I'm concerned. But I'm going to turn it over to Elliot first and see what his take is on this. Uh, does this feel like something we should just be expecting from China at this point? This seems to happen more often than not when it comes to these stories. Someone speaks out and the Chinese government um, you know, doesn't take kindly to it. We saw it with the NBA recently, but what is your feeling on, on how this story has unfolded? Well, this is, provides me an opportunity to sort of mix my two favorite hobbies here is uh, international relations, international politics and sports. Yeah, China is a fickle country. Uh, Xi Jinping, the leader of China, is... is incredibly worried uh, worried about the image of himself and his country and ties the image of the country to himself. And as such, I think having a prominent uh, sports figure make such a harsh and direct accusation of someone so senior in his government um, would be the type of thing that Xi Jinping would not take too kindly to, that the Chinese government would not take too kindly to. And, uh, and what we've learned, particularly in recent years, is that they are retaliatory. And so 
for a good week and a half there, two weeks, however long it was between when we last heard, uh, when the statement came out and then we, then we heard from uh, this individual, uh, Shui, that's correct. I'm saying that correctly, Shui. Yeah, um, Ping Shui. Ping Shui. Uh, you know, that I, very fearful for her and, 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 and what could have happened to her. Uh, it appears today she's actually spoken via video call to the IOC uh, chairman. And so at least, you know, is not, um, you know, is not in any physical, has not had any physical harm become her. Uh, which is certainly not out of the question and not a, not something that would be unheard of, particularly for the Chinese government to do to one of their own nationals. Um, and the, you know, it goes to show you um, just how dangerous it is to be a public figure in China. Uh, and I think uh, her making the accusations that she did was a very brave thing. Um, but now she's reaping the, the repercussions of that. And thankfully, thankfully, the outcry uh, from the international community is likely to have kept her a lot safer than she, than, than she could have been. And, and, and it's so great that everyone has stepped up and, and really pushed so hard to, to drive this story forward. It's, it's likely kept her safe up until now. But my fear, I think, moving forward is what happens after the pressure of the Olympics goes away, when eyes turn away from China, when we move on to other things, as we oftentimes do in sports, and, uh, and the, the public eye has gone away. And, and I think in countries like China, where they've gotten more and more totalitarian, there's some really legitimate questions arising around wh whether we want to be engaging with these countries in a number of different ways sports included. And I think that those are legitimate conversations. Is boycott the right answer? I don't know. It's, that's, very, that's a very difficult conversation and, and a different one to have. Um, but this situation is just, there's one word to describe it, scary, scary. Yeah, well, let's get into that conversation. But, you know, as we do, you're right. I think that the, the Chinese have, have shown themselves to be, as you said, sort of retaliatory, I would say sort, sort of, um, uh, well, I mean, not unlike other communist countries, uh, totalitarian countries we have seen examples of in the past, you know, not do not take kindly to criticism and do not take kindly to acts of defiance against their power. And obviously in this, say, in this case, for her to have come forward and accused a high-ranking person within the government, um, that would be, you know, a flagrant um violation of that sort of unspoken code in that country as far as how those people are treated with this sort of um, godlike reverence. And I think that that's, you know, that's there. We've seen this, the similar sort of um, retaliatory action in our own country. When you think about the Michaels and Michael Spavor and Michael Kovrig, who of course were detained by the Chinese unofficially in retaliation for Meng Wanzhou, who was held uh, in, in Vancouver for upwards of, I think, a year or almost two years uh, awaiting extradition to, to, to America on, on um, charges that she was facing in, in the United States, Canada and its relationship with the United States, trying to do them, you know, the, the correct sort of uh, political thing. And yet, you know, got themselves tied up in this mess with China. And again, it, it is a pattern of behavior. We've seen it many, many times. And so when you come to this boycott conversation or what the consequences would have been had, let's say, she not been found well and all of these things, the idea that the Women's Tennis Association was already ready to take the very um, 
significant uh, statement of threatening to pull out of China. That is a huge economic hit to them, I am sure. The same way it was when the NBA, you know, had had to deal with one of their uh, general managers speaking out against uh, the the treatment of the protesters in Hong Kong a few years ago, and the idea that the NBA really quickly folded up their tent and did not want to have a fight with China over it because they recognized the value that the Chinese market was. We see this in Hollywood. We see this in business. We see this constantly with these countries, pardon me, with these industries that are afraid to go toe to toe and to, to question or call out China's bad behavior because they are afraid of what the economic impact is. And, and I think that, um, to speak candidly, I think it's cowardly. I think yeah. that it is also disappointing as a consumer of many of these things to think that the human value of human life is less important than the almighty dollar. Why am I surprised by that? I'm not sure, but, that, but I'm still frustrated by it. And the truth is that these industries will continue to shackle themselves to more and more of these incidents where they can't stand out can't step out and can't say things the longer that they kowtow and bow down to this issue you know the longer hollywood is afraid of china the longer that the sports world the nba i'm sure the nfl to some degree is afraid of china and the wrath of them cutting the the purse or closing the purse strings um the, the, the more they get away with it, the more they are allowed to get away with it. You think back to South America, South Africa, or you think back to, to other examples where once people put their actual economic well-being behind their mouths and actually stood up for what they believed was right, change happened, right? And obviously, China is a huge superpower, a huge economic power. And it is frustrating that we have found ourselves in this situation time and time again, where we're having to have these conversations about boycotting, let's say, the Olympics, a diplomatic boycott. Well, what is that actually going to achieve, really? Right. At the end right. of the day, what is not sending your diplomats to the opening and closing ceremonies going to achieve, right? You're still doing business with China. You're still doing things that benefit China's economy. They don't care if Joe Biden doesn't show up for the opening ceremonies at the end of the day. Does it make a big difference to them? No, they don't. Eyeballs are going to be on the Beijing Olympics, the same way they were when they were the summer games there. And then the truth is pulling your athletes at this point, if Canada pulls its athletes, you really think that Canada is a big enough and an important enough country outside of North America for it to matter? Not really. Like, okay, who, who outside of North America is eager to watch the Canadians at the Olympics in hockey? Only the Canadians are right. right. Really think that the Germans or the Russians are going to be upset that they didn't show up. <laughs> no, their yeah. fans are going to be great. They've got a chance to win. The point is that to make it hurt, you have to have a sustained and constant strategy and it has to be collective. And we're just not there yet, unfortunately. That's just the truth of it. We just haven't, as, as, as nations, we haven't figured that out. And I don't think we can be relying on sports businesses to be the ones to lead the, the forefront of it as much as we may wish they would. It's just not going to happen. No, it's, it's, you're totally right about that. And in fact, usually it's the sports that kind of bring these, these, these factions back together, these countries back together after there's been a severing of relationships on a, in an international sort of realm. So to expect them to lead that is, is totally inappropriate. You're right. I mean, I think the world has lots of soul searching to do with regards to China moving forward. I I mean, countless examples. So talking to a family friend who'd made the decision recently for themselves as a family to boycott goods from China. Turns out it's an incredibly difficult thing to do yeah, no because kidding. of how interwoven they are into so many different things that are being 
that we use every day. And so yeah. and that's, that's a conversation. By design. <laughs> yeah. Very much. Absolutely. So yeah. there's uh we're not going to solve it in this conversation. The sports world isn't going to solve it. Uh, but the world is in the middle of a reckoning around uh, the way that the Chinese um, uh, operate. And I think that this is a microcosm of sort of why we need to have so much more uh, uh, robust conversations in the future. All right. And with that, I think we should leave it there. Uh, that's topic two. Do you or someone you know own a small business? Are you looking to grow or to reach new customers? Hey, why not let us help? Hattrick is looking for unique brands, businesses, and products to advertise on our show. You can find out how we can help spread the word about your business by contacting us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. All right. Topic three. I said this... uh, weeks ago i can't remember now who who we were talking about oh i I do actually remember who we were talking about talking about the toronto maple leafs and i said that i don't like to be boastful i don't like to be a braggart and i don't like to sort of pile on but we're going to talk about the vancouver canucks i know a team neither of us cheer for and certainly a team that both of us i'm sure enjoy a little bit watching struggle but the truth is it's almost gotten painful and as a person who lives in vancouver it's really it's it's sucked all of the energy up in this community just the conversation of it obviously there are bigger much more important things going on in vancouver and in lower mainland flooding um and usually as we've also talked about a lot on this show you know sports are that escape they're often like a a positive influence and energy and i'm sure that once people are safe and back in some form of normalcy in Abbotsford. I'm sure that the Abbotsford Canucks who just came to Abbotsford for the AHL will be one of those rallying places that like so often, uh, you know, happens, like you said earlier, sports will bring people back together. And I'm sure that the community will rally around that organization. It's hard to rally around the Vancouver Canucks right now. They are struggling, but what's funny about it. And I think what we want to dig into is like the circus that follows this team for me is the bigger story. So they're obviously six and 11. Look, it's not the worst record. They're not at the bottom of the table. The Kraken are below them in the Pacific division. And obviously no one is worse than the Arizona coyotes who at this point probably could lose to a a high school team out of Minnesota. But the truth is that the Vancouver Canucks struggles are always exacerbated by the fact that they're kind of the only deal in town here. You know, there's the BC lions, but eh, they don't get, they don't take up the kind of noise or space that the Canucks do. And so the, the heat is always just ratcheted up like it is in most Canadian markets. The minute they struggle, they are struggling. They went on a terrible road trip that came back after, I think losing two games back to back with giving up seven points in each of those games. It was just miserable. And then a news story came out here that Don Taylor broke, uh, one of the more iconic uh, Vancouver uh, journalists, you know, formerly of Sportsnet. And now he's got, he had a radio show, the radio station shut down. Now he's got a podcast and he, a lot of people listen to Don Taylor. Okay. So Don Taylor's got a podcast and on his podcast, he revealed that he had been asked, he and many other members of the sports talk media in the city had been asked by basically the owner of the Canucks in a private email to tone down the rhetoric because it was bad for team morale. And I'm sorry, the minute you are asking for pity from the talk sports media, you are asking for trouble because you know that these people make a living feeding into fan frustration. That is what their business is. If they're not honest in how they view how the team is doing, they will lose listeners. And that is pretty much 
what Don Taylor had to say. He basically said, look, people don't pay me to sugarcoat it or put lipstick on a pig. They, they, they pay me to call it, you know, call balls and strikes. And that's exactly what he's doing. The Canucks are bad. They've been bad. But now as an organization, they find themselves in this sort of, you know, crisis with their fans. You've obviously got fans like they usually would calling for the GM to be fired, calling for the coach to be fired. We had a fan show up the other night with a jersey that said, thanks, Jim, obviously referring to Jim Benning. And on it, he had every name of a player that had failed as a Canuck in the last since Jim Benning's been the general manager, starting obviously with the debacle of Jake Vertanen, but going all the way down the list of just transactions or deals that failed, paying Louis Erickson too much, not being able to secure you know certain free agents, losing Tyler to Foley, even though he'd had a great season for you. The list goes on and on. I go yeah. on and on. Let me turn it over to you, Elliot. What's your take and feeling on how this Canucks situation has, has devolved? They won the other night and it seemed like for a moment there was hope. They lost tonight to Winnipeg or Sunday night. They lost one nothing. But um, it's, it's early. There's time for this to get better. But is it going to get better if there isn't change? Well, I mean, some of this is also related to the fans' relationship with just various members and individuals in the organization as well, too. Like, I remember dating back to when I was there. There's an on, there's there's a very obscure and weird relationship specific between the ownership group and the fan, ownership group and the fans in the city. Yeah. There's a specific relationship between the general manager or president of hockey operations center, both, and the fans and the media and the team. Yeah. And then similarly with the coach as well too. I think Green's done a good job. Like we're trying to trying to pull that that team together mostly over the last little bit. I, it wasn't last year, but the year previous. I mean, they had a really serious cup run and they were really strong in the playoffs you had lots of excitement about this young goalie and look at this look at Pedersen performing in the playoffs and how you know that was that bubble year there was lots of excitement two years ago and what's happened well I mean I hate to say it but some of this is the writing was on the wall when you didn't have um uh it was Pedersen and Hughes right signed up until like days before the season started that impacts team morale. That in teams that impacts uh, capacity for a team to pull itself together, and it's impacted those players as well too. They're not playing up to the standard that you'd expect from those uh, from uh, players of that level, and it's impacting this team. And those are cornerstone members of this team. I mean, it's young; they're young, but I think, and I hate to say this because it's always frustrated me in head, here here in Edmonton, is that. I think Benning has overstayed his welcome in that space and he's become more of the story than anything else. And, and, and you get to a point where fan bases are so angry and so negative um, and so suspicious of everything that, uh, you know, we've seen it here in Edmonton countless times that the, the, the successes are uh, greeted with half the highs and the, the failures are greeted with double the lows um, and, and when you become the story more than the team or the player or things, that's when you have to really look at yourself in the mirror. I mean, the question I guess I'd have for you, Jordan, is like, do the Canucks need a move? Is there some, like, what is, is, is that what they need? And if so, and if so, what is that move? Is it a trade? Is it a signing? Is it a, uh, 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 you know, from a player standpoint? And, and if so, does Jim Benning have the credibility right now to make a move given his precarious situation? 
No, I think that's what's that's what's tricky, and I think that's what the, the, we we talked about this with the Maple Leafs recently when the whole they had a slow start, and we we talked about you know is Kyle Dubas in the hot seat, is uh, um, Sheldon Keith in the hot seat? Where do you point the finger? And the challenge is that for Jim Benning, um, you know this isn't his first coach, this isn't his first setup. He's built this team up and down over peaks and valleys for the last you know, I think at least four or five years, this is his blueprint. This is his plan. It's just not working right now. And the question is, is it the coaching? Have they lost the room? Will a coaching change even make a difference? As you said, I don't know. I think that there is definitely blood in the water and the sharks as the fans are out for blood. They are looking for change because they expect that if nothing changes, nothing changes at this point. The challenge is, does changing a general manager in November really make a difference to your organization? They do most of their work in the draft and the free agency window. That's the truth. Maybe there's something to be had in in the trade market, but the truth is that bailing on your general manager now isn't going to change the product on the ice. The players you have are the players you have for the most part. It's not like you have huge numbers of assets or cap space um, to go out and, I don't know, rebuild this team mid-season. That just doesn't happen. Um, sometimes teams find one or two pieces that make a difference, but I don't think that the problem here with the Canucks was one or two pieces. It seems more systemic than that. It seems more like the fact that you had two of your best stars delayed in contract negotiations until the last possible minute getting them both off to slow starts as a part of it. Yeah. Um, and then just not gelling. You have new players coming into a new organization, Oliver Ekman Larson, Connor Garland, both of whom have looked decent um, for the Canucks so far, but that's big changes. You know, there's a lot of new faces in that organization. Some young guys who've come into the organization. It just, it feels like they're back at the beginning of a rebuild uh, with great assets not to like let's not kid about this we talked with Devin Davidson when we had our fantasy show about how they didn't expect the Canucks to do well but they're going to be fantasy players on that team and there are JT Miller is a great player for this organization Connor Garland has looked good Quinn Hughes still puts up numbers on his best day Elias Pettersson can play in the top 10 in the NHL probably in terms of shooting they have a really good goaltender in Thatcher Demko all the pieces to make this team at least competitive are there What's missing is something that's intangible and they can't figure out what it is. And I think you're right. Maybe change is the way to do it. Maybe a trade shakes up the room a little bit. I don't know if there's any more motivation this team can have, honest to God. If they haven't already been felt like they're at rock bottom when the fans are turning on them like this, I don't know what else you do. You know, where's like, if it, it isn't about pride, it isn't about drive. It isn't about try. It's literally at this point, just not working. And, Unfortunately, I think the shitty thing, especially for fans who want to see big change, the truth is they have to play through this. We as Oilers fans know what it's like to have a team with potential that just can't meet it. I mean, for how many years did we have guys who everyone else would look at and say, they are good players. Why is it not working? The truth is they have to play through it and sometimes play through it to no end, but at least get you through the season, you know, and that might be where we are. I think if the, if the futility continues, changes will happen because that is what inevitably happens if they're if they're going to fire jim benning they're going to fire the coach too there's no point in bringing in a new general manager behind a lame duck coach that's just the truth of it if jim benning is the scapegoat the fans want at some point you got to pull the trigger but the truth is that changing your general manager right now isn't going to change a thing it's just the truth 
you know, you look at this lineup and as you said, like there's tons of good players here. Like, let, let, let me throw four names at you and it just in their, their top five or top five, like Pedersen, Besser, Horvat, JT Miller, Connor Garland, you know, even Tanner Pearson. That's a great, that's a great top six. Their, their defense, their top four defense, Quinn Hughes, Oliver Ekman, Larson, Tyler Myers. And I forgot Travis Hammond's on this team too, who's also a serviceable and, and really and good just top came back, yeah. And just came back. Like, I Brock mean, I think Besser is world-class. Like these guys have yeah. potential. They're just not meeting it. And again, let me read some names to you. Taylor Hall, Jordan Eberle, Ryan Nugent Hopkins. At the time, Oscar Clefbaum. At the time, you know, whomever, Devin Dubnik at one point. This team, you yeah. know, we this is not the first team in NHL history to have great talent and not be able to put it together. So the question is, I guess, where, where's where, what's missing? Is it coaching? Maybe it is coaching. And I first, the, 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 the most effective way to elicit change, in my opinion, midseason is always coaching. Because the truth is, when you change the coach, that changes the culture in the room immediately. Something yeah. shifts there, whether it's an assistant coach steps up or you do bring in somebody else. Look at what Ken, what, pardon me, what Ken Hitchcock managed to do in the second half of the season he took over. You know, he took a team that wasn't going anywhere to almost a playoff spot. Now, they didn't make the playoffs, but they were competitive down the stretch. He at least found some energy in that organization because they, you know, um, uh, they had lost the room. Uh, the previous coaches staff had lost the room. And obviously, I also think there is something to be said, as you said, like at what point do you say this general manager can't be, how long are you going to trust this general manager to do things if he's already basically on the way out, right? You don't want Jim Benning to be signing somebody or making some deal like we saw with the Miko Koskinen deal in Edmonton, you know, with Peter Shirelli leaving. You don't want to leave these yeah. people with their hands on. Now, I think it's also fair to say with the Canucks, very little goes by that Aquilini is not in the room for him. This is a very yeah. active owner. He's very similar to Eugene Melnick in Ottawa. This yeah. is a guy who, you know, has illusions of being Jim, uh, pardon me, uh, uh, Jones in, in like in Dallas. What's his name? Uh, Jerry, Jones. No, Jerry Jones. That's the name. Jerry, not Jim Jones. It's a different story. Uh, Jerry Jones in, in Dallas, where you have a very active owner, a very, you know, um, engaged owner. Um, yeah. Francesco Aquilini is a very engaged owner. And I think, to be honest with you, a lot of the frustration that fans feel towards Jim Benning and towards the coaching staff is really pent up because there's nothing you can do about your owner. You're not going to fire your owner, but that's where the well, frustration is. As you, as and you, you wonder, if, and I, and you wonder if that's not, you know, where this comes down to is if you're not looking at, uh, and I think we had those issues in Edmonton at some point too. Right. I think Daryl Cates was far too involved in some hockey operations decisions and it came back to bite uh, the Edmonton Oilers. I mean, the one we always talk about is Nail Yakupov going first overall. That was not the scouts. Um, uh, you know, we've learned that that was not where the scouts wanted to go with that pick. Would it have mattered? No, but, but you know, that was a, uh, that was an owner getting involved in areas where, you know, potentially they, sh they shouldn't have. And I wonder if this is not, we're not in a similar place here. You know, it seems what I've heard Jordan is that, the reason why there aren't any changes coming, and, and that's what's sort of been set up until this point, is that uh, there's a belief that the players need to take some responsibility for this as well, and that they have some work to do. And given what we've just talked about in terms of the quality of their roster, is that not some of the case as well, too? Is some of this not, well, is not some of this, is most of this not on the players? Oh, for sure it is. Of course, it's always in the players. But the truth is that, like, the players go out there and play, and, and you can't just fire all your players. So you have to look for changes somewhere else. The easiest things to do are always the people who, you know, you, you are contractually 
uh, opportunistically, you know, able able to, to, to change. You know, Jim Benning did say in his press conference, you know, I believe in this group. I believe that we still have enough veteran leaders around the show the way that they, you know, that the, the, they have an opportunity as players to turn this around. That's true. It's still November. But we also know that usually teams that are struggling in November, they struggle in March too. Yep. Ain't that the truth? All right. So we haven't solved the Canucks. We didn't solve China. I think we both agree that Canada did really well, but I feel like overall, you know, very, very positive podcast. We, 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 uh, as I said, saw very little, but, but I I hope that we uh, at least entertained. Uh, That has been our show for this week. Thank you, Elliot. Um, Thanks for showing up. That's what I want to say first. (laughs) Not saying names, but but thank you. Thank you for showing up. And uh, we will be back with you next week with, with some more, um, some more, you know, stories about uh, sports. That's what we're, that's what we do on this show. We talk about stories about sports. That's Hattrick. Hattrick is a member of the Ordinary Podcasting Network. It's produced every week by Jordan Dyler Coltman and Braden Dyler Coltman. And follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Thanks for listening. The Ordinary Podcasting Network wishes to acknowledge that the lands on which our conversations take place include Treaty 6 territory, the traditional meeting ground and home for many indigenous peoples, including the Cree, Dene, Soto, Blackfoot, Métis, and the Nakota Sioux peoples, as well as the unceded territories of the Coast Salish peoples, including the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. We acknowledge the many First Nations, Métis, and Inuit whose footsteps have marked these lands for generations. And we extend our appreciation for the opportunity to live, create, and share stories on these territories. The Ordinary Podcasting Network intends to engage in conversations and dialogue, which acknowledge that reconciliation is not a destination, but a journey, and that we remain committed to practicing our craft in a decolonized space.